My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, I'm excited to have on the show somebody I discovered on YouTube through a kind of meandering path. It's Finn McKinty, who's the original punk rock MBA. How are you doing today, Finn? I'm doing fantastic. You said the original, uh, uh, which which makes it sound like there's an imposter out there, uh, and a, a duplicate. I'm sure there are many who are trying to be. We'll can see. The only one, Maybe. Though. I hope so. I hope somebody thinks it's cool enough to uh, to copy it. Hey, with the, you just crossed 10 million views, so I think there's a possibility that someone in those views is influenced completely. At least one person in those 10 million must have liked it, I hope. I, I certainly hope so. And a lot of times people want to know exactly how I go about finding guests. And the path to you was kind of fascinating. Are you familiar with uh, Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah. Okay. Well, I was um, listening to his podcast, Revisionist History, trying to catch up on it because I never have time. And he had slipped in his other podcast, Broken Record, into the stream. Well, then in Broken Record, there was an episode and it had the um, craziest title. It was with Dave Hill. And it was about, what was it? The epistemology of Norwegian black metal. Oh, okay. And it was about mayhem. And it was completely mm -hmm. crazy. I was like, mm -hmm. what, 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 what? Are you kidding? What? <laughs> so it's a pretty uh, wild story. Oh, uh, totally. So I immediately was like, okay, I, I've got to find out more about this. I got the Lord of Cha Lords of Chaos book mm -hmm. and then searched out mayhem and your video came up. What killed death metal? Oh, that's funny. Cause it's, uh, uh, well, YouTube failed you. Because that video is not about black metal. No, but, but you mentioned related. it yeah. in there. and But the, it didn't fail me because <laughs> this rabbit hole brought me on a really fascinating guest. I got totally sucked into all the videos. Ironically, I don't really care that much for metal. Never have. You know, little pieces here and there. Yeah. But I'm a strange person. I'm very curious and I love passion. And I'm with you. I watch all these. Uh, I go down these different rabbit holes on YouTube for a week or two at a time. Like for a while, I was real into watching stuff about people who work on cruise ships. Yeah. And you don't even know why you can't explain it. But it's... no, I'm just I'm just interested in like, well, what what's yeah, what's that like? <laughs> exactly. And that's that's why I do this show is so I can talk to people who are passionate about what they do and just learn different things. And I'm thrilled to find out that you're one of those that as I dig, I find out more. You know, sometimes, I mean, I would have been just fine talking about the punk rock NBA videos, mm -hmm. but really it looks like you've had an entire journey to get to the YouTube. And that's only one of your, it's your side hustle, very yeah. large side hustle. I think you said about 40% of your income somewhere. Yes. So let's go back a little bit. I've done a, a lot of research and I guess you grew up in... Interesting circumstances. Uh, what what is what what do you mean by interesting? Well, I guess what I find fascinating is you mentioned that you spent a whole lot of time in AA meetings as oh, a yeah. child. Yeah, yeah, because of my mom. Uh, so my mom was in a bunch of twelve step programs, like pretty much. Twelve, so twelve step programs for those listening are uh, uh, AA, Al-Anon. Uh, alcohol, which is, I don't actually know what Al-Anon stands for, but it's a related one. There's another one called ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics that she was in. And there's, you know, NA, Narc uh, Narcotics Anonymous. There's a, a bunch of different 
programs that all use these same 12 steps to recovery. Uh, and I don't know what they are because I've, I've never personally been through the program myself. Um, but I went with my mom when I was a kid and, uh, because we were, you know, poor and, uh, she needed to go to meetings every day and we couldn't afford a babysitter. So she would take me along with her. And so when I'm five or six years old or whatever, I was hanging out in a church basement in 1984, listening to a bunch of, uh, alcoholics try to get their, uh, their lives together. So yeah, I guess that's probably atypical. It's, it's cool though, in a way, because I think about it, your being there may have helped her recovery because why is she doing it? She could keep looking at you. Sure. And it certainly helped me too. Um, so, uh, you know, probably left a few um, psychic marks on me as well. <laughs> but there's certainly things I learned from that that I would not have learned, I think, any other way that are some of the most valuable things I have now. So I'm, I'm grateful for it, uh, all things considered. I feel like from watching your videos, one thing, a thread that runs through it is you seem to be extremely careful to not judge. Well, it's not so much that it's just, it doesn't matter what I think. You know what I mean? Mm. Like uh, the only reason that I would throw my own opinion out there is, uh, in a situation in which I thought it could help someone else think about it differently or only in a way where I believe it would add value to them. Uh, I don't have any desire to just broadcast my opinion to the world so that people will listen to me talk, you know, I, I mean, that's pure ego. I, I only want to share things because I think and hope it will uh, either entertain people or make them think about something differently or, you know, somehow add value to their life. I certainly have my opinions just like anybody else. But I mean, the last thing the world needs is another jerk sitting on the sidelines, throwing rocks at the stuff that other people are doing. I mean, it's just the last thing the world needs. So I uh, I choose not to express strong negative opinions for the most part, um, not because I don't have them necessarily, but I just don't I, I, I don't think that is what I don't think that's making the world any better. Uh, and I don't want to be that person. And I think the kind of energy that you put out is the kind of energy you get back. Um, so I choose to put out uh, what I hope is positive energy. Well, that's cool. And I think you've said before, it's it's easy to throw hate. Sure. I mean, you could do it like you can find fault in anything. Right. I mean, that's but what's the point? I mean, you could you could all that's doing is that's like drinking poison, you know, like it. it what's what's the point of of taking a good thing and, and twisting your mind to look at it uh, enough times until you turn it into a bad thing. Like, congratulations. You don't like, <laughs> like you made yourself hate something. Well, good point. You know, as my mom used to say, you know, she was a, she had some, she had some, uh, some challenges, but she, uh, from dealing with all those challenges, I think became a pretty wise person, uh, and gave me a lot of advice that she was not always able to follow herself. But one of the things that she said just made me so angry when I was a kid, <laughs> But of course, in hindsight, I realized it's totally right is do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And I'd say, but I am happy when I'm right. She would say, <laughs> you sure about that? <laughs> She's like, you haven't you know, just wait till you're married. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> see, see how well that goes for you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so it's not so much that I. 
I mean, it's not that I don't judge necessarily. It's just that I don't have an I don't, I don't have a desire to share my opinions unless I believe it's going to benefit other people in some way. Cool. And you you seem to be very passionate about your roots, as I think you're self referred to as a hardcore kid. Yeah. And I thought it was very fascinating, but you pointed out how everywhere you look behind creativity, there's a hardcore kid in there. Oh yeah, everywhere. It's there. Uh, this again, I have to uh, credit my friend Mike Mowry uh, for this. If anybody uh, listening knows anything about you know the world of punk or hardcore, uh, he he got his start managing a band called Refused that you might know about. Uh, he has a great saying: "Behind every great operation, there's a hardcore kid," and it's totally true. Any kind of any kind of creative department or company or team within a company or anything like that, probably seventy percent of them are like hardcore punk metal people of some variety or another. You know, for example, as I talked about in a video recently, I worked for Abercrombie and Fitch for about four years, which is about as you know on punk as you can get uh, from the outside. But uh, I started out there doing graphic design for them, and there's I don't know maybe two, 300 people or something on the graphic design team there. And probably, yeah, 80% of them were, you know, punk, metal, hardcore, skateboarding kind of people. I can only think of one person on that whole team that was like what you would call a normie, you know, like a normal preppy girl that listened to, you know, top 40 uh, on the radio. So she was, she was actually the outlier. That's really kind of fascinating, though, that it's so specifically the hardcore scene that you've observed. Yeah, hardcore is weird because it's not big. I mean, it's like the biggest hardcore band. Like I saw one last night, this band called Knocked Loose, who's probably the biggest current hardcore band. And, you know, they sold the venue out, but it's like it's like 500 people, you know. So the biggest band in the genre is still not big, but yet it has all this cultural capital and influence and the people who are part of the culture really move the needle in a lot of ways. So I think that's kind of interesting that there's, you know, this disparity between uh, how many albums the artists sell and the influence the hardcore has on the, you know, on, on the world in general. Well, could it be, um, have you ever seen a movie called Mask? Is I it? remember it. I saw it when I was a kid. Okay. I, I mean, I don't remember anything about it, but... Well, it was in the 80s. It was a share, and it yeah. was essentially about a kid who had a very severe deformity. And for some reason, it popped in my mind that you know, hardcore has an image of, you know, violent, tough, this, and everything. It's not wrong. But they tend to be very welcoming, kind of like motorcycle gang, have an image yeah. of being really, yeah. really tough, but... Like in Mask, the gang, the motorcycle gang, yeah. accepted in this this really troubled child. Is that maybe part of the reason there's so much creativity in there is that the outliers are accepted within the community? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a little bit of uh, chicken and the egg or, you know, to put it in more, you know, scientific or rigorous terms, selection bias. You know, the uh, the, the people who choose to be part of it share common characteristics that are you know, conducive to being a creator and an entrepreneur, being somebody that makes something out of nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, people who y you it, from, you know, skimming your podcast, you have a lot of those types on the show. Those are not normal people, you know, <laughs> uh, and that cuts both ways. Right. I mean, they do sure. great things, but they're not normal people and, and not always in a in a good way you know, or, sure. or, you know, most of the time, uh, talent or being exceptional in a good way, you know, carries a cost with it as well. So if you're super talented at something, there's probably something else that you're not so great at, 
uh, as a human being. And so, I, you know, hardcore is, is full of dysfunctional people, but it's full of a lot of, you know, really talented, driven, ambitious, dysfunctional people. And so I think they end up kind of going in two paths. Uh, one is they become like just burnout career criminal drug addicts. Um, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, there's lots of them. I, you know, some of my best friends have gone to prison for, you know, for attempted murder. Um, and, uh, you know, so they either go that way or, uh, they go on to be pretty cool, successful people that do, you know, things that are pretty exceptional. And, uh, I think it's just that kind of intensity is the common thread and whether you choose or whether that gets channeled in a positive or ne negative direction is the variable. Is that possibly an aging out type thing too? Like, you know, there are so many circumstances in life I can think of that I was dumb when I was young. And if I had been one block closer to a cop or, mm -hmm. you know, somebody had walked out at the wrong time when I was driving. Okay. Sure. I, we're all guilty of a lot of things. Sure. And truthfully, a lot of times it's, well, I, I was lucky. I look back and I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yes. Let me try to, let me get my shit straight now. But I, I didn't yeah. have the maturity at the time to realize what I was doing. Could it be a, a little bit of that? That For sure. Definitely. And, you know, I think some people as they age have that realization and go, maybe I should pump the brakes and, uh, you know, use my powers for good. Uh, and other people don't have that. And they just keep, uh, keep going down the other road. You know, there is some of these people that are, you know, in their forties and fifties that are going harder than ever. And, you know, you kind of look back and you realize that at one point we're at the same point on the road. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there was a fork and we went in different directions on it. And I'm not judging them or putting them down. Sure. You know, it's, you do what you want to do with your life. I think it's a little unfortunate and sad. But I, I that that to me is the common variable with hardcore is I think that like intensity and sort of aggressive, aggr you know, there's just you have that kind of aggressive element to your personality that draws you to hardcore. I mean, you know, some of the more popular bands are called things like hate breed, terror and death threat, you know. These are not the sort of things like a normal person would hear. Hey, do you want to go see hate breed and death threat? They go, I don't know what that is, but I'm out. No, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to stay home and watch uh, the voice, you know, and then there's another kind of person that goes, I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. Let's do it. <laughs> well, ironically, from what you've said, hate breed actually has kind of motivational lyrics. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's like if you read the lyrics, they're more like a Tony Robbins <laughs> book than than. Slayer or something, you know. You know what? Who pops in my mind when you say that is um, Alice Cooper. Uh, I I am familiar with him, but I don't really know his music very well. Um, you know, crazy seventies act, yeah. all the makeup, all the blood, everything else. He likes to play golf. Yeah, he has that hot dog restaurant, doesn't he? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, he has a ton of properties, everything else. He's yeah. a conservative Republican, right wing guy. Yeah, just totally, totally square person. Yeah, um, he see, he seems like the kind of person I would like to hang out with. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't care for the, you know, all the shock stuff like that's not interesting to me, but uh, he's been running businesses for a long time and I'd love to pick his brain about that. Yeah, you, you've mentioned that before. I think that you love producers, but don't always enjoy working with bands. No, not a, not a huge fan. I realized a while ago, it was actually kind of a big an eye opening moment for me is that I realized I do not get along particularly well with people who have kind of the creative artist temperament. I'm I'm not I thought that I was one of them. I'm, I'm definitely not. I get along much better 
with people who are like engineers, I would say, are the ones that I click with the most to get along well with people who are like in the military or law enforcement, you know, artists. It's just like oil and water for me a lot of times. So you like people who are very stable or could be perceived as such? Yeah, you know. Uh, squared the, away the, would be the term I use. I, I was in the military and we'd say okay. squared away. Yeah, yeah. So my dad was in the Navy and my grandpa was in the Air Force and a bunch of my extended family you know, in the military too. And yeah, you know, and then he was, my dad was a corrections officer after that, which <laughs> I realized really was super influential on me. And we want to talk about being squared away. I mean, you know, prison is the most squared away, uh, mandatory <laughs> being squared away is mandatory in prison. Uh, true, but it doesn't sound like he was crazy hard on you and, and no, no, i'm bringing them there like how many times do you see the sheriff's kid as the biggest troublemaker in town uh, you know as well, that example yeah. you know that push pull. I, I don't, I, yeah I, I i don't know um no my my dad was not hard at all he, he he was the opposite actually and this is you know what i what i realized at a very young age is like uh you know the idea of choice and consequence which is you can do whatever you want you're just gonna have to you know, deal with the consequences uh, of that, whether they're positive or negative, you know. So, for example, um, at one point in his career, he was a counselor and a counselor in, in a in a prison is not like, uh, hey, uh, Joe, come tell me how you're feeling and I'll help <laughs> you cheer up. It's more like, OK, you have a parole hearing in nine months. If you want to have your best chances of success, I'd recommend that you take this anger management class, finish this job training program. I also see you've had a couple infractions for this and this. Make sure you don't get another one of those. And then they can either go, okay, cool, thank you, I'll get on it. Or they go, F you, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. And he'd go, okay, do what you want. I don't care. But uh, that's the way it is. And so, you know, in order to deal with people like that, you have to become very good at detaching yourself and you know they're manipulators oh yeah like criminals are manipulators and i don't think they even realize that they're just naturally so good at manipulating people and you have to become very good at detaching yourself so that they can't um control your emotions and then by extension control your actions and uh so i think my dad just got really good at that just stepping back and saying Here's the choices, A or B, you pick. Well, you're, a, um, from what I've seen, a huge believer in internalizing and are a self-starter. Like you started out kind of on your own doing fanzines, right? Yep. You want to talk yeah. about that? Well, yeah. So I started out doing, you know, fanzines when I was a kid, like, you know, back in the early 90s, just because I, you know, I think by nature, I like being busy. Some people like being lazy. And I mean, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean some people enjoy doing nothing. And I don't, that's like really stressful to me. That drives me crazy to not be doing something. And I'm not saying that that's, that might not be a good thing that I'm wired that way. Uh, or at least it's not always a good thing. You know, I think in almost all circumstances, our strengths are almost always our weaknesses as well, just okay. depending on what situation we're in. So I want to be clear that I don't, I'm not getting up on my high horse and saying that I'm so great because this is how I am. Um, cause it's definitely created a lot of problems for me too, but that's just, that's just the way I am. I think I was born that way. I don't, you know, I would be interested. One of the things I would like to to study one of the day, these days is trait theory to, to see are like, to what extent are these things baked into our neurology as, uh, as children? And, uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I, I don't think this is like some being a self-starter is not like really a choice that I made. It's just the way I was born. 
and for better or for worse. I keep thinking about, you know, like a big part of the 12-step program from what I've heard is mm-hmm. being of service. Mm-hmm. And with the fanzines, really, you were saying, hey, this band is freaking awesome. Yeah. So you world, you're supposed to know about this band. Yeah. And yeah. it's your mission to tell the world about such band. So you're kind of a born marketer in that sense. And I also totally. see it as like you like to help others or be of service to promote others. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, that was the impulse for a lot of it is to just go, man, there's this thing going on. That's pretty cool for the following reasons. And nobody's paying attention to it. Well, if nobody else is going to talk about it, I guess I will. And that's not necessarily out of some noble desire to help people. It's just like, the thing that drives me nuts is an unoptimized system. And so if <laughs> okay. if I believe that attention has been allocated improperly, I got to fix it. You have a sense of justice. No, no, no. It's not, it's not, there's no value judgment involved. Hmm. It's just like it's unoptimized. You okay. know, the same way as you would look at like, you know, do you, if you ever go to like Chipotle and you realize like, man, they have they put the corn before the lettuce and that causes a bottleneck because look there's four of these things stacked up here waiting for him to put corn on it dude i i know exactly what you're talking about i i will go crazy in a subway when i see the person who does the uh, meat and the bread Mm-hmm. And they're typically the manager because that's, you know, the, the less difficult thing. So they stack up on the person who has to put all the fixings on the sandwiches. They're getting backed up completely. And I'm just watching them shove this whole line down on that person and kind of yeah. glowering at them. And I'm like, you should be on the other side of the person working the registers, kicking. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I've and never it's... worked there. So I could totally relate to what you're saying. Exactly. I just I just want to optimize systems. And, you know, one of those things, I mean, that's why my job is I am the director of operations for an online education company. And, you know, operations is essentially just optimizing systems, you know, whatever that might be with the goal. You know, the objective is to maximize revenue and profit and along and everything else that leads up to that is just a black box that needs to be optimized. Now, you got a degree in marketing, right? Management and marketing. Management yeah. and marketing. Okay. And did you go right from school to Procter & Gamble? So uh, I, I went back to college when I was 25. I went for like a quarter when I was 18 and I dropped out because I didn't want to be there because hmm. um, I was a stupid 18-year-old that thought I had better things to do. Uh, and then I realized that I had made a terrible mistake and fortunately managed to, uh, get the train back on the rails and and get back in school by the time I was 25. Uh, and during like during the time I was in school and for a little while afterwards, I worked at a, uh, a product design company called Kaleidoscope in Cincinnati, where which is where the headquarters of Procter & Gamble are. And I worked on a bunch of P&G stuff there, uh-huh. most notably Febreze and Swiffer, also Bounce and um, uh, Pampers and, I don't know, probably 15 other products that they make, but mostly Febreze and Swiffer. Some decidedly unsexy products in our mind. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I... I, I I'm not passionate at all about, you know, they call that category home care. And it's not a thing that I'm passionate about uh, as a consumer. But I unexpectedly loved working on that stuff because the people at P&G are so smart and those are such interesting problems. You know, you think about, for example, I worked on the, you know, bounce, the fabric softener, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's the little cardboard box with the flap that lifts sure. up. Uh, I worked on that uh, a bit 
And one of the things that uh, one of the considerations there is that at the time they made 400 million units a year of this thing. And it's probably way more. This is in 2008 or something. So it's probably way more than that now. 400 million units of this thing. So if we wanted to add one one cent of cost to this thing, that Mm. means they're writing a check for four million bucks a year. Wow. So you better have a damn good reason why you want to add one cent of cost to this package. Uh, or, uh, any, like literally anything that you want to change on that. Think about how that ripples out. I don't know how many factories they have producing that in the world, probably 10 or something like that. And, you know, how do you roll that out to that assembly line? Like if you want to change one little thing, even just the printing, well, we got to make plates for that. And we got to make sure that they're all printing this. Like we just spent six months getting them all color calibrated with each other. We got to do that all over again. Do we really want to do that just to change the color of this word on the box? Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. That's a business decision. But even something as simple as like, you know, changing the color of this word on the box is a big deal because of the scale. Uh, and so I, I unexpectedly found that to be really fascinating work. It sounds that way. It's, um, it sounds like you're having to steer a battleship quite literally. Well, I was not the one steering it. Just but I mean, as an organization was, that they yeah. have to. And um, I don't know. I have was you... a deckhand, just to be clear. <laughs> I'm not the, not the brains of the operation by any means. But just even being there. I mean, I, we, I remember we were part of an exercise coming up with like new product ideas for this one particular part of the business. And at the end of that, the product ideas that we helped kind of, you know, we're the product design firm. So we would kind of design these prototypes in the end of it. The directors presented their, I don't know, top eight ideas or something like that to the C-suite. Um, and, I, you know, I was not part of that presentation, but I was standing in the room when mm. they present, you know, so seeing how a director at P&G has a conversation about a potential new product idea with the CEO, CMO, and CTO of Procter & Gamble is a pretty cool experience. Oh, yeah. And it had to inform you for everything later. I mean, all I can think of is like, if you can make something boring, sellable. Exactly. Then make it something exciting. Think about the categories that Procter & Gamble is in. Like paper, for example. So mm-hmm. I don't know if they still have um, brawny, but they used to or maybe still do, or soap. Right. So like I, ivory is, you know, a big one. Uh, these are these are the most mature of mature product categories that stopped growing 100 years ago. Yeah, right? Commodities. When, yeah, well, maybe not 100 years ago, probably after World War II. Right. As, as the middle class blew up, when everyone became able to afford these things, those things stopped growing organically, and now they just grow basically pegged to population growth, so 2 or 3% a year. We, you know... You can't really tell Wall Street, we're just going to grow 2 or 3% a year. I mean, you can, but that's, right. you don't want to. So they've got to find a way in these incredibly mature, dull categories where all the profit was squeezed out of this category decades ago. They've got to find a way to grow 6 or 7% a year. And that is really, really, really hard. And so even though I'm not particularly interested in laundry or furniture care, that's a pretty interesting problem. It's like, how do you grow an incredible, how do you, how do you squeeze this blood from a stone and find growth in this insanely mature product category? That's true optimization. Absolutely. And then, you know, there's a the whole supply chain part of it that I had nothing to do with, but that's a fascinating thing too. Well, let's pivot to your YouTube channel. Yeah. Cause nobody wants to hear, I was just about to talk about 
uh, Febreze factories, but nobody wants to hear about that. Actually, I do, but we're on a tight deadline. Yeah. So I have to get there. I, I keep thinking of power of marginal gains that they have to work. Mm-hmm. But um, for your YouTube channel, you, how long have you been doing that now? I, I uploaded the – so I created the channel a couple of years ago, but I didn't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first video was uploaded, I think it's September or October of 2017, so just about two years now. Oh, nice. Okay. So you've had a really good traction on it. Have you had to shape it as you went? Yeah, I talked about I, I the the content that I had at the beginning was focused more on business than music. Mm-hmm. So it was like business with a dash of music, right? And nobody cared. <laughs> so I flipped that relationship and now it's music with a dash of business and it turns out people are more interested in that and thus you have your second channel which is exactly. probably more your passion project exactly that's interesting so how has the market responded to each type of thing i mean like you have different series mm-hmm. um the what killed series mm-hmm. i definitely was drawn into that's where i started is that one of your stronger performers or, or which series is doing the best for you yeah that's that's the best one and it makes sense so in, basically that's a series where I look at genres that have fallen off in terms of like their peak of commercial success. And I try to figure out what happened and why. And so, for example, you know, pop punk or death metal or any of these things that had a moment years ago and that moment has passed. And then I try to figure out like what exactly happened to cause them to fall off. And it makes sense because, you know, if you make a video about any one band or person or something like that, you know, it requires if you're not a fan of that band or a person, you're not interested probably. On the other hand, a genre, you know, there's hundreds of bands uh, or people within that genre, you know, that that might be of interest to you. So it makes sense that those have broader appeal. So it was calculated. I mean, what made well, you come up actually, with that? It actually wasn't. Um, I, I mean, the idea for a series, but the thing with the thing with um, as I'm sure you've found, uh, well, you can tell me if you disagree. Maybe you do, but any kind of content business, it, you know, these are all very hit driven, mm-hmm. and nobody knows what is going to be a hit, no matter how long you've been doing this or how good you are. Mm, absolutely, you never know. The thing that you're you're like, man, this one is going to crush, and it's oh, like, yeah. Eh. And then the one that you've like bang out in ten minutes. People love it. And you're like, really? You like that one? Mm-hmm. Or okay. you're not even sure if you want to release it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you're just like, I don't know. It's quite. And then you get like all kinds of feedback on it. Oh, it's it, the best thing you've ever done. You're like, and you're like really? God, I'm so stupid because I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing. <laughs> exactly. So the reason I mentioned that, um, it, you know, it's not to be humble or something like that. But just for anybody listening that is struggling with that same thing, it's like you just have to. I don't want to say spray and pray, but it is a little bit of that. Poke you know, a stick you, at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just got to try stuff. Um, and uh, I think that that's a big part of it. You, you got to throw stuff out there and let the market tell you what's good. Um, there's nobody out there that can predict it in advance, in my opinion. And on that note, am I going to guess correctly that your favorite videos aren't always the best performers? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Do you get frustrated with the market telling you what it wants and responding to it? Or does that just fit in with your analytical mind of, no, okay, this is an experiment and I'm learning and I'm I'm letting it shape me and mold me a little bit too? Uh, I get a little frustrated by it occasionally, but then I, I remind myself of what you just said, you know, which is like, well, who am I to push against the river? <laughs> fair point, fair point. Now, wh- one of the points that you brought up and... I would love to just kind of talk out is the death of rock. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, go ahead. I think 
Well, you flat out release a video that rock is dying. You release yeah. another one that rap is doing much better. Yeah. Um, what I was wondering is what you think. And I was going to discuss my ideas with you too. Yeah, please do. Well, what I think is that to make a long story short without, without just restating the video, uh, essentially it's very clear that uh, rock no longer really has a place at the top of mainstream culture. Uh, that's been happening for a while and, and it's, only accelerating. Uh, and so there's, I think a couple reasons, you know, so for example, go look at the Spotify top 100 charts or whatever, uh, right now. And there's probably somewhere between zero and one rock artists on that chart. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a few reasons for that. One of which being that rock fans have this weird tendency to like lionize the past and hate on anything new. I think that's kind of the main one. And then secondarily that they talk out of both sides of their mouth in that they say they want rock to be mainstream yet at the same time they don't want to they don't want to pull the levers that make something mainstream for example you know being on tv or mainstream media so outlets. yeah exactly <laughs> so it's like well i i have no opinion i mean getting to what you said at the beginning i'm not here to judge that one way or the other i have no personal i don't have a dog in the fight um i'm just saying like this is the path to mainstream success. If you don't want to take, I mean, and as my dad would, it's the same thing as my dad would say. Like, look, here's how you become, here's how you you get traction in the mainstream. If you don't want to do that stuff, cool, but don't come crying to me when it doesn't happen. I wanted to throw another one in there and get your opinion. Um, have you seen the documentary Corporate FM? Uh, I have not. What it covers is the growth of like Clear Channel yeah. Communications, who's now iHeart Radio. Right. And how the laws changed, and suddenly you had a handful of entities that owned all the radio stations. Sure. And if you look at the timing of this, the late 90s, that's almost like the last, in my mind, of the mainstream rock. There was some carryover into the early 80s, but not not much. And it seems like the um, pop artists that were coming up at the time, they're still there. Like, like we got a snapshot in time and instead of seeing cycling over and over, like hair metal getting replaced by, um, the grunge scene, sure. you know, in the standard, you know, ebb and flow, ebb and flow, we're at a ebb or it's flown down the toilet. <laughs> uh, there might, there might be some truth to that, but I guess that goes back to what you're talking about before about the idea of locus of control. So if you look that up, basically the locus of control is a concept that, uh, that essentially boils down to like, where do you believe control over your life and your future lies? Do you think it lies within? Do you think you have control over your future? Or do you think that external forces beyond your control uh, are, you know, do you believe that you're just a, a little paper boat tossed on the waves of fate by things you can't control, such as radio? And I think that's a bunch of bullshit. I'm not directing that at you, but just I sure. hear this from people that blame radio. And it's just like, dude, come on. Like, how many counterexamples do I have to come up with of people that have become insanely successful without radio even knowing they exist for that to just be empirically false? I would actually argue that the death of radio has helped them. Absolutely. Like Those what artists, is that? Like the underground has risen because of that. Yes. There are so many bands, for example. So let's I've I've found this out from researching my videos. There's so many bands that made music videos back in the 90s that I loved. And I never saw I didn't even know the video existed right. because until I found it on YouTube because there was nowhere to play it in 1995 because MTV is not going to play some hardcore bands video. So 
where like they made this video and nobody ever saw it until it was on YouTube. Because as you as you've pointed out now, all these like distribution choke points are gone. So the idea that radio in particular, you can put it on Spotify and immediately what does Spotify have now, like 150 million users like True. there's 150 million people or put it on SoundCloud, you know, where you can put it everywhere. You can go at, go to distrokid.com. Use use the uh, discount code punk rock MBA for 7% of your first order, uh, <laughs> uh, your, your annual subscription. And with 45 seconds of work, you can upload your music and have it on. I think they have like 150 different distribution services now. Right. Like people think like, by the way, if you're some like underground artist, you think radio would have given you the time of day? Oh, no, in the no, no, 90s? no. Like, I wasn't talking about that. I was talking no, no, about no. the rock star no, death. No, and I hear that you. Because... I hear you. But <laughs> the other thing is, like, why in the world? So what a record company exists to monetize sure. their artists and their catalog. There's this idea that the record companies killed rock for some. Why would they do that? Like, it's like Ford going, you know what? Let's let's sabotage the or not Ford, uh, Toyota, rather. You know, we've made billions and billions and billions of dollars off the Camry. Let's let's uh, flush all that down the toilet in favor of this new unproven thing, because we don't like people that drive Camrys. <laughs> like, it, it makes no sense. Well, I, I personally feel like uh, music's come full circle. I talked to David Hooper, who's he's in Nashville about it. Mm-hmm. And really, the original singles that came out had nothing to do about profiting on the single. It was an advertiser promotional tool to get yeah. played on the radio so people would go out and go see them in a concert. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like it's just come full circle that the songs are being released for next to nothing in Spotify or whatever else, the artists are not making money off of the music. They make money off of the shows, off of merch and things like that. Well, that's that's partly true. But remember, there are things like... And licensing. For example, yeah. So Bandcamp, for example, exists and they take 5%. A good friend of mine uh, named Aaron Marshall, he plays under the name Intervals. He, he plays weird, like instrumental, progressive guitar music. And he makes a very nice living primarily off of Bandcamp because he keeps 95% of that. Um, there's tons and tons of examples of rappers that don't ever play shows, that don't really sell merch, that make lots and lots of money off streaming. I, you know, there's always everyone's got an excuse for why this platform like I'm just so tired of the excuse making <laughs> of everybody blaming their lack of success on some platform standing in their way. It's just like. Dude, what do you want? Like, wh- what do you want? Somebody to just pull up to your house with the Brinks truck and say, you're so brilliant. Here's money. Well, I, I could do that. Yeah. You can pull up to my house. Okay. It's just like, what do you, what, <laughs> what exactly do you, yes, it's hard to make money. No shit. It's especially hard to make money off of something in which supply and demand are just like so absurdly imbalanced. You know, there's this massive, massive, massive supply of music. And a, a fairly finite amount of attention people are willing to, you know, dedicate to that. Like, no shit, it's hard to make money off of art. It always has been and it always will be because there's a lot of people that want to make art and there's a lot less people that want to pay for it. So you would almost call that a feature, not a problem. It just it, it just is what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's economics and uh, You action. have to survive. I mean, Supply and demand meet and settle on an equilibrium market clearing price. There's that. And in order to succeed, somebody really has to hold out. I mean, the average overnight sensation is like 10 years. Well, yeah, that's true, too. But, you know, look at I mean, you know, Lil Nas X is probably I mean, he's a freak outlier for sure. But 
look at Lil Nas X. Like, uh, he's like 20, I think. A year and a half ago, he was nobody. And now he has the most streamed song of all time. I saw him play at the Amazon, like, summer employee party, you know? Like, Amazon. Like, it's just some, he's a gay black cowboy rapper. <laughs> he found who, his niche. Yeah. <laughs> who was a kid in his bedroom that ran a Nicki Minaj Twitter fan account. A year and a half later, he's getting paid probably $400,000 to play the Amazon company party. Nice and good for him. But out of because all the bands you follow and yeah. that you've known, how many of them have that success? Most of them are the 10-year overnighters. Uh, sure. But there's lots and lots and lots of people, especially in rap, because they're better. They understand what the levers to success are now, and they're mm -hmm. better at pulling those levers than people in rock bands are. It's, it's not complicated. Well, cool. So what levers do you recommend somebody pulls is, let's say, running a podcast? Uh, I think that first and foremost, well, what you should do is go listen to Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast because he answers this question all the time and he does a better job of it than I can. But uh, it, always ask yourself, like, what can you do to put out content that's going to make somebody's life a little bit better in some way, which is primarily either going to be educating them, entertaining them, or ideally both. If you can do mm -hmm. both like he does, then you are probably a superstar. But if you can do a halfway decent job of one or the other, then you will get traction. And so bands or podcasters have a bad habit of all the content that they put out is begging for you to go listen to their stuff. Well, right. people have a, people are cognitive misers. You know, they have a limited amount of attention that they're willing to spend. And you're asking them to spend that attention on you. Well, why should they do that? What you need to do is build up a personal relationship with your audience. So now that you and I have talked and, you know, we're friendly, if you sent me a link to your music in three days, it was like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, I recorded this song a while ago. I'd love to hear what you think of it. I will listen to it. Sure. Because I know you. If I didn't know you, if you just came up to me on the street and said, hey, I recorded the song we listened to it, I would say, we're going to work. <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely. So how do you do that at scale is the question. And you do that by putting out content that makes people's lives better in some way or another by educating them or, or entertaining them or ideally both. And if you do that at, in, in large quantity at high quality, eventually you will get success. And so to be specific there, um, instead of saying, for example, if you're in a band, instead of posting every day, please listen to our stuff on SoundCloud, why don't you put out a funny little skit? Or why don't you put out a tutorial about how you did this or that? Or mm -hmm. why don't you sit down and tell a story about uh, how uh, you and the drummer met in this really funny and expected way? And then people will get to know you. And initially, not that many people are going to be watching, but you keep doing this. One person shares it, and then you build your audience one person at a time, one day at a time. I mean, you know how this goes. And the beginning of it is always the hardest. Those like first hundred or first thousand followers are really hard to get. And it's really demoralizing. And it sucks. <laughs> a lot. Well, I was ending on the inspirational note there. But, but, <laughs> but that's the game. You just got to get through it, you know? And then once you get through it and you have some momentum, then you breathe a little bit and you go, okay, cool. This like snowball is rolling on its own a little bit now. I guess I did it. So that is what you should do is just put out content relentlessly and always asking yourself what's in it for them. How is this piece of content going to improve the lives of the people who consume it? Well, Finn, I know you have a heart out. 
thank you so much. And people can find you. Your YouTube channel is Punk Rock MBA. Uh, yes. Links to it. And finnmckenty.com. F-I-N-N-M-C-K-E-N-T-Y. Thanks so much for coming on, man. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money is a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.